question for you. Who here knows what a Twitter hashtag is? Raise your hand if you know what a Twitter hashtag is. All right, sweet. Hashtag young people. Um, We're going to give you a little interwebs history lesson. A little bit of a history lesson about uh, the internet here and explain what a hashtag is, what Twitter is. uh, And I promise we're going somewhere with this. I'm not just telling you and then we'll get into the, the sermon. There are two things you need to know about this. Twitter, and this is the definition from Twitter on their website, Twitter is an information network made up of 140 character messages called tweets. You have to limit it to 140 characters. There's no more than that. I'm not sure why, but that's what it is. It's an easy way to discover the latest news related to subjects you may care about. And one of the ways you can do that is through this hashtag symbol, that number sign there. The hashtag symbol is used to mark keywords, anything that shows up that's a word that you can tag in there, used to mark keywords or topics in a tweet. A tweet is that 140 character limit, and a tweet's just one of those messages. So when you do that, when you use those hashtags, it's like searching, and it'll group together all of the messages that contain what is next to the hashtag. I know some of you are thoroughly like, what is he even talking about? So let me show you how it works here. Here's how it works. When you put in a hashtag, that number symbol, next to a word or a phrase, without any spaces, it groups them together so you can search for them. So if yesterday you were wondering about the score of the Vols game uh, or what's going on, and you maybe wanted a running commentary and you didn't have a TV or you didn't have uh, anything accessible, if you had your smartphone, you'd go on Twitter, and you could have done these hashtags and and suddenly you would have thousands of tweets about the UT Vols football game. It would have told you the score. It would have told you how Justin Worley is doing. It would have told you the whole nine yards. I mean, you could have found out actually a lot of things you probably don't want to know as well. But you could put those in, and it will return those kinds of results. So what I did yesterday is I decided uh, I was going to look at a couple things. And I want to give you some more examples just so you know what we're talking about because we are headed somewhere with this. So I did hashtag things my pastor says. And wondered what came up. Uh, Some pretty cool stuff, some pretty funny stuff. Uh, Things like uh, this one who said, if you read the Old Testament, you'll learn that God used a donkey and that gives me hope. (laughs) This one said, why is there no nativity scene in D.C.? Because there's no wise men. (laughs) It's just too easy to make fun of politicians apparently. This one is uh, pretty good. The government doesn't owe you anything. You get off your blessed assurance and work. (laughs) And then don't worry, we're not going to do this, but the last one I found was this one here. It's time to pull out the rattlesnakes and let everybody get bit. (laughs) Believe me, we're not doing that. If you're a guest with us today, I promise none of that will be happening. And if it were to happen, I would likewise leave. One more hashtag I want to ask you about. Raise your hand if you know about FWP, First World Problems. Raise your hand if you know of that hashtag. All right, this has become a popular hashtag because what it does is it sort of, honestly what it does is it sort of mocks affluent first world, quote, problems that honestly are not problems. It's just not a big deal, but it's something that we we deal with from day to day in an affluent culture like ours. And so you may have some tweets that look like this. 
the sunlight in my corner office causes glare on my computer screen. I have to close the blinds. That is a first world problem. Oh, darn, Mr. Corner Office. Next one, I have no place to put my leftovers from dinner because I have too much food in my fridge. I have heard that kind of thing said before. I don't know where to put the food in my pantry. I need more space. First world problem. The one day I try to sleep in, my maid wakes me up. I hate that when that happens. <laughs> I am not talking about my wife, I promise. Can't decide whether to stay oceanfront at an all-inclusive resort or nine minutes away with a group of friends while vacationing in Jamaica. Hard decision to make. And then here's another good one, first world problem in that same vein. I'm annoyed that my family only takes vacations to Costa Rica since we bought a house there. (laughs) And I have one more that uh, those of you who know that I uh, love coffee will enjoy. It's an internet meme and it says, "Ask for no whipped cream on my tall Starbucks order. Gave me a grande with extra whipped cream. She's actually crying because her coffee order was incorrect. That for sure is a first world problem. <laughs> now imagine if Paul and Timothy were alive today and were on Twitter. And, and I don't think this would happen because honestly I think they're both more mature than this. But imagine if Paul and Timothy were on Twitter today and and Timothy started, I don't know, whining about how hard it was to deal with the false teachers who were in the church that he was leading there at Ephesus. What what if he started complaining about, hey, Paul, I don't know how to take care of these people. And, and, And Paul goes on to Twitter and he might put something like this. Dude, Christ didn't say, take up your pillow and warm blanket and follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. That is a disciple maker problem right there. Uh, By the way, the Apostle Paul, if you know what this is, uh, was a hashtag abuser. (laughs) Or a hash spaz, as I found out. You're welcome. Verse 1 in our passage today says, but, but, but don't miss this. Understand this. First world problems are not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the kinds of things that Paul is writing to Timothy because Timothy is engaged in spiritual warfare against sin so that the glory of God is made known through him to another person fanning the flame of the gospel. That is what we are called to do. That's who we are called to be as believers. We're talking in this series about fanning the flame of the gospel here in 2 Timothy. And it's all about Paul and Timothy and their relationship. Paul showing Timothy, this is how you do ministry. This is how you make disciples in your leadership role there. And he has false prophets, false teachers all around him in that context. And and, and I promise you, he's not sitting there going, oh, I have first world problems like I don't don't have space for my food in the fridge or in the pantry. But you know what? I, I think a lot of us approach our faith in Christ and our work and our ministry on behalf of him and on behalf of the gospel in the world, like it's, like it's something that we have first world problems about. Like, listen, if, if your ministry involvement and engagement for the sake of the gospel doesn't take you miles past first world problems, there is something you don't get about the cross. 
if, if as we read here in this passage, you start to think, that is heavy stuff. I have never experienced something like that. You know why? You know why? Because disciple making is on your terms. For your purposes. Which is to say it's churchianity that makes a disciple of you. If we're reading along here today in this passage and you think, man, this is weighty. This is sobering. And you don't identify with some of this? Take note. Take note. Paul's writing to somebody who is engaged in spiritual warfare day to day. Who wakes up with the sense of, I I have got to sit with Jesus in the Holy Spirit and pray and read my Bible and be focused on what I have to do today. Because listen, my to-do list, even though there are things I have to do, my to-do list, number one, is to make disciples. So this, this passage may feel a bit weird and may not apply. If so, what, what do you need to change about your life? So that what we'll talk about today registers, makes sense, is something with which you can identify. Let's jump in at verse 1. Paul writing to Timothy here, chapter 3. We're in the third of three weeks that deal with the false teachers that Paul is telling Timothy to uh, deal with. And that that passage, that whole big section goes from 2.14 to 3.9. So this is the third of three weeks and he says this in verse one paul writing to timothy but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty he says but understand get clear on this mark this know this for sure he says as part of being a disciple maker you must always remember that in the last days we'll come back to that phrase in a little bit in the last days there will come times of of difficulty First world problems. You ever, you ever called something difficult when just it, it's not? Like that was so hard to finish that crossword puzzle. What, what, what a difficult task that was. Like, like you're agonizing over a four-letter word, four word for, for margarine. It's oleo, by the way, O-L-E-O. Like that's hard. Like, oh no, I have to go to the store and then I have to go to another store to buy the things I have plenty of money for. How burdensome. Burdensome, friends. Burdensome is I love Jesus and I'm going to live His life. I'm going to follow Him to the cross like He did for me. Not so that I can earn it, but because I love Him and I want to give my life to Him. That's what Paul's writing to Timothy about. And that's why when he says there will come times of of difficulty, he doesn't just mean like FWP, first world problems kind of things. He's talking about fiercely difficult things that will be involved in Timothy's life that he he will be engaged in as he does ministry. Paul's talking about difficult in the sense that it's going to require great focus and great effort and energy from Timothy to carry out the work that is empowered by the Spirit and made fruitful fruitful by God, but he's going to have to, to focus on this. It's the same word, this word for difficult here, that is used to describe in Matthew 8, 28, the two demon-possessed men. They're called, they're called fierce. Demon-possessed men are called fierce in Matthew 8, 28. Like, like 
That's difficult. <laughs> That's the same kind of difficult here that he's using in this, this passage in three one. This is like wolves in sheep's clothing trying to steal and kill and destroy the people around you you care about to whom you're ministering. That kind of difficulty. There will come, Paul says, that kind of fierceness if you're engaged in disciple-making for real. I mean, that's what Paul's saying here. One version says, Mark, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Terrible times. Fierce opposition to you carrying out the work of the gospel. Fierce opposition to you carrying out Christ's work of making disciples. Fierce opposition to Timothy's leadership and teaching there in Ephesus. Fierce opposition to the truth of who God is and what He offers us. A fierce opposition to the movement of the gospel, the fanning of the flame of the gospel in the life of another. This is why disciple-making is not going to be easy because there are spiritual forces at work that motivate people, often without them even knowing. It motivates them to conspire with the evil one to hinder the progress of your disciple-making. And so if you follow Christ, you will encounter difficulty in carrying out the mission and you will face opposition. Now, we've talked about the first part of verse 1. We've talked about the last part. When is this time of difficulty going to happen? He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. When are those last days? Are they, are they past? Are they now? Are they future? What does he mean by this? And, and why does Paul include this in this Passage. We're going to kind of camp out here for a while because this is important to think about and get our heads straight about because the urgency for what we're talking about in making disciples especially is bound up in this phrase in the last days. So Paul is very intentionally using this phrase in the last days here to, to say, listen, you need to be steadfast in this. You, you need to be strong in this. You need to focus on what your work is as a disciple maker. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is a verse that says, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what Paul wants for Timothy. and That's what he wants for us, to be steadfast, immovable, that our focus is on what God wants us to do. So again, verse 1, it says, Understand this in the last days. There will come times of difficulty. The simplest answer to the question of when does this happen, past, present, future, is yes. Yes. Past, it happened for the disciples and those who have gone before us, so it's also in our past. The last days are now for us. And if Jesus doesn't return today, they will be in the future for us until we're gone. Now let me just show you a couple reasons why I say that we are already in the last days. And I, and, and I think, in fact, that the last days began when Jesus came the first time. When Jesus came the first time was the beginning of the last days. We're going to look at two places, one that's not in our passage, one that is. Turn with me to Acts 2 first, and we'll go there to see what it helps us understand. Acts 2, verse 17. I'll look it up with you so you've got some time to find it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. A very significant chapter in church history. This is the, the birth of the New Testament church. It's the birth of, of the church as God's missionary organization. 
I mean, that's what, that's what we are. We are God's mission organization. So let me set the scene for you before we jump into verse 17. Just so you kind of know what's going on here. Because I think that's important before we jump into the text itself. Uh, this is before Jesus ascended to heaven at the end of the Gospels. And, and, and Luke wrote uh, Acts. He also wrote uh, Luke. So Luke is volume 1. Acts is volume 2. So before Jesus ascended into heaven... Jesus told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem and to pray and to to wait for God to send the Holy Spirit. They understood well that that's what he was intending for them to to stay there and to wait and to pray for the Holy Spirit to come in a special way. The Holy Spirit existed from eternity past, but in a special way to empower them in their mission of disciple-making. They were there in Jerusalem praying and waiting when suddenly on the day of Pentecost in this upper room, which must have been close to the temple because there were Jews who saw this commotion and came over when suddenly on the day of Pentecost in this upper room, the Holy Spirit descended with the sound of a mighty wind and the appearance of fire, two signs of the presence of God. And the disciples began there to speak in the tongues and the languages of all over the known Roman world. And wouldn't you know it, hmm, happens to be that those Jews who hear this commotion come over and these are Jews who understand these languages the disciples didn't. The Holy Spirit empowering them to speak in languages as a demonstration that the gospel, that the good news of Christ coming is not just for the Jews, it's for everybody else too. So that's the scene here, disciples in an upper room. Must have been close to the Temple Mount because all these Jews who happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast overheard this commotion. Maybe they saw what was going on. They they came to see it. So this crowd of Jews is around and all this commotion is going on. And at that very moment, Jump into the text, verse 14. At the very moment, in the middle of this commotion, Peter stands and he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And then I think this is a joke here, actually. Verse 15. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. The Jews were there and they had said, These people are so out of their minds. They're speaking in weird languages. Uh, What's going on? They must be drunk. And so Peter starts off and says, listen, they're not, they're not drunk. It's the third hour of the day. Then he said this, verse 16, significant stuff here. But this, what's happening here in that upper room, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, chapter 2, through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel 2 here. He says, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just for the Jews, but for the non-Jewish Gentiles as well. It shall be in the last days that I will pour my spirit out, my spirit out in all flesh. And then he keeps preaching and he stops quoting Joel 2 at this key verse for both Joel 2 and Acts 2. He says this, And it shall come to pass in those last days that everyone who calls upon, go to the next, thank you, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The last days. That's the time when they shall be saved. So when Jesus comes the first time, he establishes those last days that began there. Think of the historic significance of what Peter is saying here. For the Jews who are hearing this, this would have been an earth-shattering claim. You see, by this time in Jewish history, there had been 400 years of, of silence. No prophet had spoken, so they assumed that God was not speaking to them. 
most rabbis at that time believed that there was a Jewish tradition also at the time that this passage that Peter quotes, Joel 2, that this passage foretells the coming of the Messiah who would deliver the Jewish people. And so Peter stands up and he says, the silence is over and salvation is available today. And if you keep reading that passage, they were cut to the heart, it says. And they repented of their sins and took on the Messiah. So here stands Peter telling them the last days are now. The last days are today. The last days predicted in Joel 2. In the New Testament, in in numerous other places, tells us that the last days began with Jesus' first coming. Here are a few of them. Hebrews 1, 1 1-2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. These things from the Old Testament happened to the people of God as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 1 Timothy 4 had already been written to Timothy by Paul. And so he says this in his previous letter. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. A parallel kind of to our passage. There are false prophets around. Second Peter 3.3 3 says, scoffers will come in the last days following their sinful desires. Very similar to what Paul says here. So the New Testament witnesses to this. In many places, especially Acts 2. Here's the second place we see this. In our own passage, turn back to 2 Timothy 3. And just look at this real quick. Jump to verse 5 for just a second there in 2 Timothy 3. Paul has just said, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And then he describes in verses 2 to 4 what these uh, people who bring the difficulty look like, the characteristics of the opposition. And then he says this in verse 5, avoid such people avoid such people not like make sure in the future you avoid i'm glad you have avoided he says it to him in the present tense paul has just told timothy that opposition will come from people in the last days and then he says in the present tense to avoid those people who are the opposition are you catching on yet why would paul say that if he didn't intend to warn Timothy, that he would experience that opposition in his ministry now. So are, are we living in the last days? Absolutely. We have, we have been living in the last days since Jesus came the first time. His marching orders for his disciples in the Great Commission ended by him saying, I'll be with you till the end of the age. And then he sent them off. So why does Paul include this point here in verse 1? And why are we belaboring the point about us being in the last days? Simply put, it's because time is running out. First world problems, Christians, have this, have this unawareness 
this lack of concern for the truth that there is a finite, a finite amount of time to carry out the work of Jesus. This isn't going to keep going forever. Which is to say, if you are going to participate in the amazing work that God has given us uh, of bringing people into this relationship with Jesus where they can know Him forever and have joy in Him forever, if you want to enter into that, there is a finite amount of time that you have. The resources for this are not forever in human terms. Jude 17 through 23a says this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then he says this, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. First world problems, Christians, who are not engaged in disciple making, don't believe there's a hell. And, and think that snatching people from the fire and saving them is a fanciful thing for the zealots and crazy people out there. Ephesians 5, a great couple of verses you should memorize. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time redeeming the time for the purposes of, of God being made known in life of another. The calling that He gave us all as disciples, making the best of use of the time because the days are evil, the days are short. Friend, if you are a believer in Christ and you think, and if you think that being a disciple maker is some optional maybe someday when I get the time, when I'm good enough, when I know enough about Jesus, when I know enough about my Bible, when I finally get to those daily devotions and I do it in the morning for two hours and I've done it solid so it's a habit for my life, when I finally get to those things, then I'm ready to be a disciple maker. If you're a believer in Christ, and if you think that this is some optional, finally, someday, maybe, get to it, purpose for your life, then you will not identify with what Paul is about to say to Timothy. If this is some optional activity for you, then you misunderstand that when you accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, you accepted the call to come and to die like Him. To have a fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. You didn't just come one time for fire insurance. You come every day of your life because the battle that you are in is the battle against sin and it's four souls. And as a disciple maker who's focused on the marching orders from our general, you wake up in the morning focused because you know there's going to be opposition. There's going to be opposition. That's the first couple of blanks in your outline for today. It's the sort of main heading that we need to understand before we move on in the rest here. Disciple makers face opposition. Those who are not disciple makers will not face opposition. Disciple makers face opposition. 
Because if you're following Christ in his work of making disciples, you will experience, like Christ, his life in you and the death to self that is required for someone else to live. I want to briefly touch on verses 2 through 9 because they give us some understanding, some color to the opposition. They give us some guidelines for spotting and recognizing them. Uh, The opposition number one, the opposition number one is in love with itself. The opposition is in love with itself. Look at verses two through four here. It says, people will be lovers of self. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. He keeps going on there and he ends there. He ends there in verse four and says, these people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of of God. He starts by calling them lovers of self and ends by saying they love pleasure more than they love God. Those who oppose the forward, mo- the forward movement of the gospel love themselves more than God. Let it sink in. Opposing the forward movement of the gospel is demonstrative of loving self more than loving God. Are we preaching that? The opposition seems godly. The opposition seems godly. Verse 5 says these people have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Some versions say they have the, the form of godliness. The outside look, the outside look of godliness, but it's actually a fake. It's without the spiritual power and fruit that results in people coming to know the Lord. By people looking at your life and, get, and saying, man, that's, that's, a, that's a free from sin person. That person knows the joy of a relationship with God. And this is the opposite of that. Paul says to flat out avoid fakes. Don't waste time on fakes, on those who don't respond to spiritual nurture. I'm not saying like immediately. I'm not saying like early on. I'm saying when there's a time at which you realize in your disciple-making process, listen, I'm barking up the wrong tree. Move on. Those are harsh words. Those are harsh words, but they're not my words. They're Jesus' words. They're Jesus' words. He tells the disciples to dust off their feet. He says, don't, don't cast pearls before swine. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He looks at this fruit tree that looks like it should be bearing fruit, but it doesn't. And he curses it. Learn to recognize those who seem good on the outside, but bear no fruit as a disciple maker. Because those people, those people will drag you away from God's calling for you. And here's a sobering part of this. The opposition comes from within. The opposition comes from within. Listen, I don't think the evil one's worried about non-believers who openly rebel against God and live their lives as if there is no God. I, I really just don't think the evil one is worried about them because he knows he's got them. That's a terrible strategy 
for the evil one to work on those who already reject God. He's already won them over. The evil one does his work from within. Verse 6, For among them, meaning those who are in love with themselves and who seem godly, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. They're insidious in their work. They're burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They're led by flesh and not by spirit. They're always learning and yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Like verse 5 said, they seem to be learning, but they never quite arrive to a knowledge of Jesus that comes from personal experience of Christ's sufferings. The replication of the life of Christ in you, death to self for the sake of the life of another. And he moves on here in verse 8. He likens these false teachers who are there in Ephesus. This is talking about within the church. Do the homework about the context. I'm not making this up. He likens those false teachers to two magicians in Pharaoh's court. In verse 8, he says this, Just as John Ace and John Brace opposed Moses, these were two magicians in the court of Pharaoh, and Moses and Aaron were there saying on behalf of God, let the people go, and he wouldn't, and uh, that all happened after this. But, but Aaron puts down his staff and it turns into a serpent. And John Ace and John Brace, as he cites here, they do the same thing. But they're fakes. It says, just as John Ace and John Brace opposed Moses, so these men, these false teachers, also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They're fakes. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. In Exodus, John Ace and John Brace threw down their staffs and they became serpents. And Aaron had thrown his down first and it became a serpent. And then Aaron's serpent came and swallowed up John Ace and John Brace's serpents. But just to say, listen, God's going to take care as, as righteous and holy judge. We... we we work to make disciples. We don't have to work a whole lot to make sure that we're doing a whole lot for the false teachers. We avoid that way of thinking and living. We stay focused on what God called us to. Friends, the evil one does not spend time or effort on unbelievers who openly hate God. The evil one attacks the kingdom of God by using those who love themselves more than God and who can even seem godly and who come from within. Please, friend, understand that making disciples is hard work. It's going to be the hardest work you've ever participated in because it will continue to mean death to your purposes and death to self but in a way that is joyful because you participate in the redemption of lives for the sake of God's glory. There's nothing, there's nothing better than that. All, all sacrifice this side of heaven we will someday find was absolutely worth it for the cause of Christ. But know that as you do that, know that as you do that, you will face opposition. Let's pray, friends.